invite you to turn in your Bibles to the letter of Jude. If you don't know where that is, just go to Revelation, last book of the Bible, and Jude is just before that. And it's easy to miss, it's just one chapter, and that's, if you see in the order of worship, it says, just as Jude that we're reading, because we're reading all of Jude. So it'll be all of Jude, verses 1 through 25. Before we hear God's word read, let us go to him again in prayer, asking for his help. O God, you know that even with our own, because of our own sins, we might be tempted to push away the light of your word, and we pray that your spirit would resist that, would drive that temptation away, that we would humbly submit to your word as it is read and preached this morning. Amen. Here now, the word of God from the letter of Jude. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed too long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling... He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual morality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are hidden reefs at your love feasts. As they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, 
But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, and may God add his blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. For the month of October, we pause from considering Paul's letter to Titus and move to the right over to Jude, as as we just read. Now, we'll be looking at the five doctrines of grace through Jude. If you're not familiar with the five doctrines of grace, one summary is, is TULIP. T stands for total depravity. U stands for unconditional election. L stands for limited atonement. I stands for irresistible grace, and P stands for perseverance of the saints. Our own covenant children are learning these five points this month. So we're going to be looking at each of these points through Jude alone. And perhaps you're skeptical. Surely we can find all five points in a book like Romans. But can we see these doctrines in so short a book in only 25 verses? Absolutely. These doctrines of grace are the warp and woof of the Word of God, and we're, it's wise we see them everywhere. The book of Jude is, is easy to miss, either unintentionally, maybe you're heading your way over to Revelation and just skip on over, just omit Jude, or maybe you miss it intentionally, thinking, can really... Anything good come from so short a book? I mean, when was the last time we read the book of Jude? It's just so small. It, it is a, a weighty book, as you could tell just by hearing the word read. Jude is often called the most neglected New Testament book of the Bible. That might be the case for modern preachers, readers. It was not so for the Puritans. William Jenkin for instance, wrote about 400 pages of commentary, two columns, single-spaced, and what looks to be about probably size 6 font. It's probably about 1,000 pages in normal printing today, just on 25 verses. William Perkins, the father of Puritanism, preached 66 sermons on the book of Jude. And to put that in perspective, I recently concluded the Gospel of Mark, 16 chapters, and I preached that in 64 sermons. And here, Perkins did one book in 66 sermons. Leave it to the Puritans to plumb the depths of God's deep word. My preaching plan, as you can tell, is a lot more modest than, than uh, Perkins or the other Puritans with just, a, just five messages here. But clearly, there is so much in this short book that ought to take our attention, that that ought to move us to adoration of our God. Jude, the brother of James, the youngest half-brother of Jesus, 
packs a punch above his weight class, perhaps, and, and through this letter, he lands blows against the rib cage of sin. He one-two punches the face of the dragon, and he uppercuts the head of the snake, KOing the enemy with the heavy word of God. Punching, fighting, these terms are most appropriate for a letter like this. Given the purpose that Jude indicates, it is to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints in the face of ungodliness. The fight is on. The fight is on because sin rages on and must be knocked on its backside or else. Or else what? Well, without the grace of God, ungodliness rules the hearts of all. Look again with me at verse 4. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. In this first message from Jude, we consider the meat. We consider the reason behind his exhortation for the saints to contend always for the faith once for all delivered. The saints need to fight for this faith because they live in a land of ungodliness. They live in a land that has been noticeably blessed, that has been significantly graced by God. But oh, how countless is the ungodly. Do we not know this land ourselves? Has not American soil drunk deeply from the rains of God's blessings? Hasn't the light of God's word shone brightly upon us and illumined our land? Although it has known centuries of revival, of godly growth, we cannot escape the application of this verse to our own context that Americans, even Christians in America, have perverted the grace of our God into sensuality and have denied our only Master and Lord, Jesus the Christ. Many have crept in unnoticed, bearing the name Christian and rejecting Christ all the while with their conduct. A sermon every Sunday, indeed, both sermons every Sunday could be preached on the perversion of the grace of God, just as talk show hosts make a living on commenting on the dead deeds of the world daily. We have ample evidence before us in our own day of rampant perversion of grace. In Jude's context and in our own, this perversion manifests in positions, positions of attitudes, affections, and actions. Our attitude about Christ's lordship, about his authority, reveals our hearts. The issue of authority is really, at bottom, the fundamental issue that we all have to square with. Whom will we obey? Whose words will speak into our lives? Will they be our own words, or will they be the words of another? Will it be our authority or authority of another? And who is that other authority if, if we're not it? In Jude's day, as in ours, there are dreamers who, relying on their own dreams, defile the flesh and reject authority. They claim revelation that is not part of that faith once for all delivered, and because of this supposedly new revelation, they have permission to engage in immorality. It's quite convenient, isn't it? 
I think of Joseph Smith Jr., the, the founder and the prophet of Mormonism. This, this man said he had a word from Heavenly Father, and this word said that plural marriage was okay. That's their way of saying polygamy. Plural marriage is, is okay. And so he gives this revelation to his only wife at the time, Emma. And what does she do with it? She takes it and she throws it away. She says, yeah, right. He goes back and turns out he receives another revelation from Heavenly Father, this time with a repetition of that command for plural marriage, the necessity of it even. But next time, you know, we have a, a curse upon those who would buck up against that new revelation. Anyone who says this is not the way of truth would be condemned. Obviously, a word to Emma. Joseph Smith wanted his fleshly desires to be fulfilled. He was a lustful man and he had many wives. Those who are set on the flesh will rationalize with revelation. They will say, this is the word of God. They will find passages. They will pervert the very word of God that their sinful desires might be carried out. Today, this can be seen sometimes in, in quite bizarre ways. As in the recent case with Bethel Church in California. I'm not sure if you're familiar with, with, this, uh, with this church, with this, the heresy that goes, goes on in this church. And, but they have... They're really focused on the supernatural and speaking prophetic words. And they have a school called Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, BSSM. And as schools do, they have a variety of techniques to tap into the teaching, and in this case, to tap into the divine. And one recent exercise that I read about, saw, was prophetic uno activation. Prophetic uno activation, that is to say, you're using the deck of cards, uno cards, to activate a word from the Lord. Here's a little bit how it goes. You take just a single deck of uno cards as the tool by which you can speak prophetically to another, and so you gather in groups of around six to eight, and then you take turns overturning the cards. You draw a red card. What you get to do is you get to speak a word to the person on your left about that person's financial situation. If you overturn a yellow card, then you get to speak a word to someone about his or her job situation. Now check this one out. You draw a wild card, okay? Then you get to choose to speak to someone about that person's destiny. There's some high stakes drawing a wild card. This is how some people view God's revelation. They don't believe that the 66 books are sufficient. They must have a different word, a word from above, that just so happens to meet their own fleshly desires or the wishes of another. That's pretty bizarre. Less bizarre but no less dangerous, perhaps even more dangerous, is just the typical way that Christians might operate, might think. You, you'll hear things like, I don't think I can stay married to my husband. And when asked why, he said, well, God wants me to be happy. Okay, he certainly does want you to be happy and holy. And it just so happens that if I divorce this man, there is already another one who can make me happy. 
Or you'll hear, well, God is telling me to quit my job. Okay, let's, let's talk about this. Let's think about this. Do you have another job in mind? No, just leave a faith, baby. Leave a faith. I'll, ha- I'll handle it. What about your family? What about your spouse? It'll be taken care of. Now, there's something to be said about trusting the Lord in his providence. There's also something to be said about testing the Lord. If you have a good, reliable source of income, if you need another job, go find another job while you have a job. Or you'll hear something like, you know, God's moving us to a different church. Okay, that happens. Happens all the time. Any, any reason? Can you help us to understand how we can be better, better stewards of God's resources? I just, it's just a sense. I'm just, I just have a sense that I need to be out of here. But God doesn't give us a sense. He gives us his word. And there are biblical principles. There's specific words here that we should lean upon. But you hear this it's too often in Christian circles. I just feel like, okay, well, let's match that feeling to the word of God. Let's subject that to the word of God. Let us not rely on our own authority, but on the authority of the word of God. These are all perversions of God's grace, of God's clear revelation in favor of their own mind and fulfillment of their own flesh. Dear ones, we are on much surer ground with the clear authoritative word of Christ. It will take some work at understanding his word, at applying his word. There's no doubt about that. But it's worth the effort. Our affections for Christ and his word also reveal our hearts. Jude refers to those in Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities who pursued unnatural desire, who pursued strange flesh. No doubt he was referring to homosexuality. This pursuit has not waned as history has unfolded. Cannot say that things have gotten better in this area. And every generation seems to have faced this as a problem. Every, his, every period of history has known it. It seems to be the case that our evangelical moment has kneeled before the LGBTQ plus people under misguided views of love, truth, tolerance, hospitality, friendship, proving once again that they do not consult the counsel of the word of God that speaks clearly to all of these issues. For us to wake up to this reality, we do not need to turn to the increasingly common drag queen hour for children, though those are common and those are bizarre and ridiculous. But we don't need to go to that to see it in our own, in the own house of God, a church and our own denomination has been especially insubordinate and flagrant over the years. And because they make this public, I have no problem making them public. Memorial Presbyterian Church, a month ago, allowed its chapel called Sanctuary for the Arts, this chapel, which is overseen by the elders, allowed this chapel to host a concert called Celestial Bodies. This concert featured one participant who is well-known for the gay pride involvement, Memorial Press says that this ministry of the chapel is to manifest the welcome of Jesus. I'm not going to read to you the description of celestial bodies for the event. That would be inappropriate to read it up here. They say this is to manifest the welcome of Jesus. This is a community outreach. How can this event be 
the manifestation of the welcome of Jesus, when it instead feeds sinful passions, when it instead permits unnatural desires, when it is promoting strange flesh, the Lord welcomes everyone who comes to him, everyone who hates his sinful affections, everyone who wants his spirit to change him from the inside out. The Lord welcomes everyone in that way. But he does not welcome those who say no to the action of sin, but yes to the desire for it. He does not welcome those who say, I want to have you as my Savior, but keep my sin. What are we repenting from but our own sin? The ungodliness of our hearts. The very reason that Christ went to the cross. Where do our affections lie? Do they lie for the self or for the Son? Do they lie for the flesh or for the, for the God who became flesh to kill our flesh? Our attitudes, our affections, and even our actions being the fruit of attitudes and affections reveal the state of our hearts. The sinful angels we see here, discontent with their position, gave up on God. And they revolted, they rebelled against God. The original sodomites, giving full reign to their passions, gave up on God and gave themselves over to forbidden flesh. Cain, bitter at God, murdered a son of God, his brother Abel. Korah, who refused to play follow the leader, exalted himself and rebelled against God. The false teachers in Jude's day have walked away from God's word and have walked the way of Cain and in the demonic spirit of Balaam. Deep down, false teachers today have no love for God's word. They are loudmouth boasters who would never think of boasting only in the Lord. They are ruled by their own authority, giving in to their own desires. They act unruly. In a word, this is ungodliness to the core. This is radical ungodliness. Radical from the Latin radix, which means core. This is fundamental ungodliness. Everything we do comes from our hearts. We could summarize ourselves as our hearts. Attitudes, actions, words, thoughts, Everything we do, everything we say, everything we think, everything we feel comes from our hearts. And everything in our hearts is ungodly. There's not a bit of of good in a heart that's not been changed by Christ. This is our heart, unless it is ruled by the ruler of heaven and earth, Christ the king. And at times we then struggle. We see our own ungodly ways. And as we, children of God, see these, whenever we see our attitudes, our actions, our, our affections, like that like stubborn bull trying to kick off its rider, let us confess our sins, confess our sinfulness, and humbly submit to our rider, Jesus Christ. And from this heart of ungodliness come ungodly proclamations. Out of the heart of man does the mouth speak, we're told. 
And so an ungodly heart speaks things no one in his right mind would ever think or say. Indeed, the ungodly are not in their right mind. The ungodly need their minds renewed, washed by the power of the Word of God. And Jude tells us that these false teachers are blasphemers. It's not a wonder that these loudmouth boasters would blaspheme along their journey of self-exaltation. Their goal is to lift themselves up. Their goal is to get gain for themselves. And any authority that competes with that will be spoken against, be blasphemed. One testimony against the false teachers is the angelic hosts. Those who, before God, daily are crying out, holy, holy, holy. They know the wickedness of man. They see the sinfulness of these false teachers. And with, with their words, with the false teacher's words, they blaspheme, they shame the glorious ones, the angels. But Michael, the archangel, we're told, he respected his own position. He did not presume to speak a word against the once glorious one, the devil. But instead, he deferred to the God of divine judgment. He said, the Lord rebuke you. But these humans have exalted themselves above the highest of angels in speaking against God's angelic hosts. And, of course, in speaking against God's own people, using them for their own gain. You can be a blasphemer without zeroing in on the angels. You just need to insult the God of the Word. Of course, it's not a course of action that we would recommend going up against God. You'll, you'll lose that battle ten times out of ten. Ungodly proclamations come from the world, and this is something we expect why wouldn't the worldly people act worldly? Why, why wouldn't the unrighteous spew out unrighteousness? Why wouldn't the wicked spew out wickedness? Of course they would. We expect this. But ungodly blasphemous proclamations come from the church as well. This is why Jude warns the people of those who have crept in unnoticed. An interesting survey that seeks to put a finger on the pulse of the current state of theology was done by Ligonier's survey. They uh, do a survey every couple of years just to see how the state of theology is in America. Surveying Christians, adult Christians, and just adult population on just important statements of the Bible. And these questions are not trick questions. You can look up state of theology from Ligonier and you'll see these questions. They're not trick questions at all. They're really not hard if you spend a year or two in Sunday school almost at any level you'll know what these are. I don't have time to go through all the questions, but one question that's related to this message was, are we born innocent? That's the question. Okay. Are we born innocent? That's a pretty fundamental question. 71% of American adults say they believe we are born innocent in the eyes of God. 71% of American adults. Okay. Honestly, I thought that probably would have been higher since this is not taking into account Christian affiliation. Okay. But that means only 39% of American population believes it's guilty before God at birth. Well, how do the evangelicals fare? 
How do they do? These are the ones who have the gospel, after all. Certainly, this question would be easily answered. In the negative, of course, right? 65% of evangelical Americans affirm their innocence before God at birth. 65 say, yes, at birth, I am innocent before God. 65% of those surveyed. Now, the word evangelical is rather squishy, isn't it? And what does it mean? Well, it means almost anything to anyone. But the root of that word is the gospel. Do you say, at least I believe the gospel? That's good news. Well, isn't the good news in contrast to the bad news? What's the bad news? That we are sinners in need of a Savior. I did a, I did a membership interview just before worship this morning, and an eight-year-old knew the answer to this question. She knew she was not innocent before God at birth. She knew she was a sinner. And American evangelical adults can't get this right. It's shameful, isn't it? On so fundamental a question, what is your standing when you come out of the womb to God? Are you innocent? Are you guilty? 65% innocent. If we cannot get this most basic question settled according to the word of God, are we really surprised to hear blasphemous proclamations from the mouths of so-called evangelicals? Such perversion of grace over and over again. We see marriage perverted. Godly marriages are rarely held in high honor. Divorce is often recommended, yes, even in Christian circles, and I mean apart from the two grounds that God has given us in his word. I mentioned months ago that I taught a class on marriage and family. And the class was made up of ministers. And I offered them case study week after week of marriage problems. Very few of them had adultery and abandonment as factors in the case. Those are two biblical grounds for divorce, if you read your Bible. And these people in the class were regularly recommending to a hypothetical counselee to get divorced, even though there were not these two conditions, neither one of these conditions. Again, citing God wants you to be happy. Sexuality is perverted. We're told that if a man self-describes as a woman, it is unloving to deny it. We're told that if a man self-describes as a homosexual, it is unloving to steer him away from that identity. And it's unloving. We heard that at the last General Assembly, just this last year, from one of our own ministers. We're told that living together before marrying is a solid option. You got to know, you know, before you seal the deal, you have to know if you're compatible in all the ways, we're told. Sexuality is perverted. Work is perverted. Good, honest, hard work is hard to come by, even by Christians these days. Too many lazy pastors have fed the lie that pastors work only one day of the week. What are they doing with all their time? Too many Christian employees have followed the path of the sloth. And they give Christ a bad name by not working heartily unto him when they relate to their boss. Too many Christian employers have followed the way of Scrooge. Not caring for the employees. Caring for the bottom line caring for themselves alone. 
Justice is perverted. The word of God no longer apparently speaks clearly to what justice really is. We're told that biblical justice requires the equality of outcome for everyone. We're told that a Marxist economy or justice is the biblical one. Again, perversions of grace. Life is perverted. We're told that all of life matters, but the woman's choice is most meaningful. We practically let people have the cake of forgiveness by killing the kid in the womb. The responsibility of these people that Jude is writing to is the same for us as well. It is to examine. These false teachers came in unnoticed. That's the problem. But that does not mean that they cannot be noticed. Jude illustrated his argument of the ungodliness of man by pointing to real-life evildoers. He noticed them. And how did he notice them? He just knew his Bible. All these examples that he gives, you can find in the Old Testament. He knew his Bible. And he wants his readers to compare, to contrast God's word with the false teachers. And to compare the false teachers in the past with the false teachers in the present You can notice them. You notice them by their fruit. We notice ungodliness with the statements, with the proclamations, but also with the conduct. We notice them. We are to examine them. And we have to also examine our own heart's perversion of grace. We're not just zeroing in here on the false teachers. This is for the church. It's for all who call themselves followers of Christ. All who have taken on that name, beloved. We who are beloved also are tempted to pervert the grace of God into sensuality. And so we should examine our own heart. Compare it to the authoritative word of God. Now, you can't really preach a sermon on total depravity of man without being a downer. It just seems like one page after another of, of bad news, of illustrations of, of wickedness. And obviously, that was intentional. I think perhaps we can grow in our understanding of how wicked humanity really is, apart from the grace of God. Hard to hear of all, perhaps, is that this ungodliness is met with godly punishment. On the one hand, it's one thing to say, yeah, people are evil, and then they die and that's it. But that's not it for the ungodly. Jude makes a proclamation of his own, a pronouncement of woe on all who blaspheme. Verse 11, he says, woe to them. You don't want a woe directed your way. That's a declaration of ruin, of destruction, of curse. You want the opposite. You want the blessing. In various ways, and we'll go into more detail in the coming weeks, but Jude writes of their eventual condemnation written before the world began. He says in verse 4, they were designated for this condemnation. In verse 6, he says, They shall remain in eternal chains under gloomy darkness. 
In verse 7, they shall undergo a punishment of eternal fire. In verse 13, for them the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. In verse 15, judgment will be executed on all the ungodly. You cannot read Jude and say, you were never warned. And if you never read Jude before, now you have. And it is a, a weighty book. It really highlights the ungodliness of the heart. If you're not in Christ, this is your destination. I don't have to pull out a wild card to tell you what your destiny is. I see it right here in God's authoritative word. It's very clear. If you do not bend the knee to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, as the only one who can save you from your ungodliness, if you do not bend the knee to him, this is your destiny. Condemnation. An eternity of darkness. But there is still hope. Because if you are right now ungodly, you are alive. And only because of the grace of God. And so I would exhort you then to call upon him. To find salvation in him alone. That's what he does. That's what he's invited you to do. As long as the day is today, it is a day of salvation. It's just so sweet to trust in Jesus as we sing. There is, in verse 21, mercy that leads to eternal life. You don't work for it. It's a gift. The wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what you worked your whole life of ungodliness for. Spiritual death, eternal punishment. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Mercy that leads to eternal life. Do you not want this? Will that not satisfy your soul? There's also hope for for the godly. For all those who are afflicted by the ungodly. For the righteous that are afflicted, that are suffering at the hands of the unrighteous. God is a God of justice. And as he executes judgment on the ungodly, that means salvation for you. That means deliverance for you. What shall we do with the grace that God has given to us? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may abound? May it never be. Let us instead praise and thank our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, because it is from this radical ungodliness that he has saved us. It is true that without the grace of God, ungodliness rules the hearts of all. But it is just as true that with the grace of God, godliness rules the hearts of all who trust in him. Let us then worship him, for no longer does ungodliness rule our hearts, but Christ our King rules them. This is truly a grace not to be perverted but proclaimed in praise to the one who is worthy, our God. Let's pray. Our gracious God, our just God, we thank you for this word. What a hard word it is to hear. 
because we are faced again with our own sinfulness, our own hearts that may or may not be born again. I pray, Lord, that you would, by the word just preached, transform hearts, that you would convert them if they're not converted, that you would change them so significantly that they bend the knee to you in all their ways and acknowledge you as their Lord. Oh, lead them, Lord, in righteousness. Amen.